This is Real World Product Management. This is Vlad, and uh, this is another episode of the Real World Product Management. I have Fazan on the line. Uh, Fazan, please introduce yourself and tell us a bit more who you are and what you do and what is your connection with product management. Uh, hi there, Vlad. Thank you, first of all, for uh, having me on. Uh, I guess a little bit about me. Um, I got into product management entirely by accident, stumbling into the role uh, at a startup where I started like advocating for the user in like extremely early design phase. Um, And I've had to learn on the go and sort of teach myself. So I probably have a different perspective than most PMs. Uh, I guess a little bit about me. Um, I studied engineering in undergrad uh, and then have a research background in like sensor design uh, and lithography. But then I went to medical school and uh, got interested in biotech startups. Uh, And that's kind of where I found myself. and where this story begins. You're saying you got there by entirely by accident by advocating for a customer. Was there no one else to speak on their behalf? Was there like no one else to say, hey, this is not what customers wanted? What was what was the process really? Um, well, so we started out uh, in a lab where we were just researching a new type of brain imaging modality uh, and when we understood that uh, this might be something that would be useful um, to clinicians, I looked around uh, and everyone else on the staff was an academic and I was someone who was training to be a clinician and had been working with uh, clinicians, uh, physicians, I guess you could say, for quite some time. And I realized that if I didn't say anything now, I would end up with a lot of the same frustrations I had with devices that I've had to use uh, at the bedside with patients and that sort of thing. So uh, it was almost a forced thing. I didn't really want to do this and found myself there. Okay. Okay. That, I mean, that, that's interesting. I, I spent some time in... Uh in life sciences, let's let's put a broader perspective on that. Uh, I spent some time working for companies uh, in in healthcare. I don't remember them being specifically against the the users, against the hey, we know better. But uh, it's it's interesting perspective. Um, how I mean the way the way you you presented, it's interesting perspective. How no one really cared, <laughs> uh, especially given that there is a frustration. Yeah, and I, I think you did pick up on the on the frustration there for me. Um, what really happened, I think, is in the last, uh, I would say, five to ten years, the way that uh, tools for physicians have been made seem to throw out any empathy for the user. Uh, and I find that a very annoying and uh, really grating thing because, uh, you know, you see, like, I think the best thing I can point to is electronic medical records, Uh We've seen those sort of come into the market over the last uh, decade, and they still seem to have almost uh, hostile user interfaces. And I've never met a doctor that liked using them. (laughs) So... I, I, I like I like that uh, that comparison. Uh, as a matter of fact, I some of my previous uh, jobs I was actually working on uh, EMR systems, and oh I agree with you. <laughs> yes, I agree with you about a hostile user interface. Uh, but I think again, since I was uh, I was both a developer. And I'm coming from a, a software development background. Since I was a developer, I was. Uh, 
manager of development resources and I was a product manager on uh, EMRs or something wider, but still considered EMR. There's a lot of emphasis on making sure that the right data is coming through and making sure that the data is actually is coming through and right. making sure that the data makes sense. So by the by the by the time that you make sure all that happened, you almost have no time, no resources to worry about the user interface. And uh, I I remember the pushback that I got when I uh, I was working on the you can call it a clinical viewer, right? The, the, the viewer of the from clinical sure, information for sure, the patient. Yeah, and uh, I remember when I introduced uh, the idea of uh, why don't we have mobile interface? I mean, look at our doctors. Not everybody wants to carry around six pound laptop. Maybe they want to carry around a tablet. Wouldn't that be easier? <laughs> and people looked at me like, what tablet? What do you mean doctors don't want to carry around the laptop? What what are you talking about? Who are you? Who are you? And why are you talking like that? And, oh. uh, yeah, I, I I I can relate to that pain. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I I can already say, Vlad. Uh, I think you and I are going to be friends because I think you you recognized and understood uh, well before many of the others at your company did, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> Even if it didn't make it all the way to the uh, to production, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, uh, I I have this weird thing about staying in the same place for too long. So I moved up. I moved on to another. I actually moved on to a completely different industry. But uh, let's let's talk more about you. So uh, you're in the product management role. What is it that you do? Um, so most of what I do now is uh, advisory. So I've actually um, I've stayed at the company in an advisory role. Um, but I now manage other product managers there and manage some of the other teams still. Uh, but I do that remotely, so that's kind of an interesting uh, thing. And I've uh, moved on to do some product consulting at other places and tried to kind of uh, branch out from there. Uh, and I don't think I'll be returning to practicing medicine anytime soon. That's interesting. Again, uh, from from my experience working, uh, you know, my last role at a healthcare, we had a lot of um, what was the word? I, I I can't remember. I can't remember the term that we've used, mm-hmm. but we had a lot of MDs and RNs. Uh, I'm sorry for those who are not familiar with uh, American nomenclature. It's uh, doctors and nurses. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, we had a lot of people uh, with degrees um, and, and sometimes advanced degrees in the roles of business analysts, in the roles of uh, uh, business owners or, or product owners or uh, kind of sort of product managers, even though it was not uh, it wasn't called a product manager, it was something else. But um, we had a lot of people in the IT with uh, with the medical degrees. And now that you're saying you're kind of picking up the same path, I wonder why. What's what's so hot about being a product manager for a person <laughs> with medical degrees? Don't you guys want to save lives and, and stuff? Um, I think we do, but uh, I think that a lot of us uh, go into medicine expecting to be able to make a larger impact, uh, maybe on a greater scale than is possible. Um in actual clinical practice. And, and that sounds weird for me to say, but uh, the truth is that you can only work on a few patients at a time. Um, and I think that if you go into the biotech side, or at least what attracted me to that side, is that your solutions can scale. And so if you, if you create a life-saving or life-changing um, product or help guide the development of something like that, it can 
often impact more people positively uh, than you could uh, with your own hands in medicine. And like for me, that's something that I'm really attracted to. Uh, I want to maximize my positive impact on society uh, more so than just practice a field that I really care about. Wow, that that that. Thank you. That's that's really interesting perspective. It, it is kind of like part of my story when I was talking about usually on the interviews or or whenever there's a question about my career, and and I tell a story that I worked for healthcare and I worked on this product that was displaying clinical data for clinicians, especially around the ER when you need to make fast decisions, and you need to make sure that you have all the information about the patient, make sure that you not prescribe something that's going to kill them. I said, was there's really you know we the only the only thing that we were worried about was uh, patients' lives, so no pressure on developing the right things, the right <laughs> features and right product. And and I usually I use it in the more like self irony sense that guess that happened. But I mean the way you put it in perspective, it's it's now it sounds like I'm bragging, so I should probably drop that. <laughs> no, no, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily bragging, and and I think that what you did there was really interesting and important and i i can agree after using emr systems that uh they do display very relevant data so um, if you had a hand in that i i have to say thank you uh um, i wish <laughs> but maybe i don't know uh potentially maybe all right uh let's let's move on um on to your uh your, what, what products have you worked on or are you working on what is it that uh, that you do currently so uh, currently, I do uh, product consulting with local small businesses. Um, this is sort of a thing I started uh, on the side when I was transitioning to an advisory role. And uh, essentially, I work with local businesses because I think that they don't have the advantages of talking to product people. And um, I'm a relatively new and relatively young product manager, so... Uh, I think that if there are any of you out li- out there listening that want to jumpstart your career, this is a really good way to do it, is approach local small businesses, try to uh, improve, streamline, or adapt their products better to the correct type of consumer, and also try to solve um, things like uh, user retention and user turnover and, and some other things. And I think that it's a really interesting arena to work in because those people don't usually have the same types of resources, but you can set it up in a way that incentivizes both of you to work well together and to sort of come up with solutions. And if you do it well, uh, you'll see quite a bit of growth because that's the other nice positive of small businesses is that there's usually a lot of room to grow. Okay, now I just have to ask, as a, as a person who both worked with small businesses and, and owned small businesses before, uh, what kind of products specifically you guys are, are working on? Um, so we do some food stuff, uh, which is actually really, really interesting. Um, we do some local services, so a lot of printing and a lot of like uh, graphic design related service type stuff uh, where it's like, there's opportunities for business-to-business growth uh, as well as business-to-consumer growth. Uh, and then there's also like uh, I've worked with local business-to-business businesses and tried to help them optimize their own products, um, part of which is like uh, 
I was lucky enough to have some experience trying to pitch ideas to other businesses. And so sometimes it's, oh, let's go in and I'll optimize this business and try to get it um, purchased by someone else or, or those types of things. And so, yeah, it's a very, very different world, but I really enjoy what I do. Uh, and it's fun doing it part-time. <laughs> okay. Um, interesting. Uh, you, you talked, you said that you had a hand in uh, biotech and startups. Is that another part of your uh, daily routine or is that something completely different? Uh, that's the, so that's part of the advisory role that I have right now. And then um, I started, I consult for a couple of other biotech companies uh, and that's a totally different area of like what I like to do. Uh, and so I guess I could say if you want to sum up my career, it's uh, that I, I don't like traditional nine to fives and uh, I found it much more interesting to consult for a bunch of different people uh, all at once and in different arenas. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, I've done that before, but um, <laughs> uh, lately, I, I I like a deep, I still like going uh, into fifteen different directions at the same time. But uh, I, I I also like deep diving into things, and um, right, I, I found it hard to consult for five different uh, five different products, for example, uh, that are each in a different uh, in a different arena or different uh, vertical. So kudos to you. That's that's really interesting. I find um, it stimulating, so, I guess you could say. And uh, oh, definitely. It's, yeah, it's just you know, <laughs> it's a different kind of thing. And if I would like, I I understand what you mean by a need to deep dive. And if I would say there's one area where I like to deep dive, it's the biotech side. So okay. Uh, so do you want do you want to talk more about the biotech products that you worked on? Um, yeah, so uh, I've done a lot of stuff on brain imaging, uh, which is really, really interesting. Uh, there's some weird considerations you run into there. Uh, I've worked on some surgical devices, uh, which are really, really fascinating. I was briefly product owner at a company that did um, resorbable polymers for uh surgical like replacement of bone so they could uh like let's say that you had like a multiple fracture somewhere you could go in and excise the bone that was destroyed um 3d print a polymer that uh you could actually bolt into the bone uh exactly where it was and the bone would grow back uh replacing the polymer and your body would actually recycle that polymer over time uh completely biosafe resorbable um fascinating material and uh, another one that I helped uh, shape was a nerve regrowing material. Uh, and that company is still relatively young. So um, I can't speak too much about that, but I can say that um, there are now some pretty interesting products they have that uh, allow you to essentially stitch two nerves together uh, that have been severed. And the scaffolding and matrix that have been put into place like allow you to then regrow the nerve in a span of a couple of months with 90 plus percent um recovery rates which is significantly better than we've had before okay uh before before i uh, say what i think about this uh, what was the success rate before um without any type of um scaffolding it's less than 10 percent so you went from less than ten percent to over ninety percent. Yeah, that was uh, is that, okay. 
I mean, it was an I mean, to optimization me, problem. Just, just to be clear, to me, this sounds like you just recited a couple of episodes of Altered Carbon. This <laughs> is to me, this sounds like a complete. The, someone from science fiction just told me that. Oh, you know what? Uh, you know, time travel is possible. <laughs> so, no, I, no, I, no, I mean, I've I've heard of as... I've heard of things. Uh, I've heard of things when you can fix the bone by uh, using some kind of uh, an item put in there, but the whole process of regrowing the bone, regrowing the bone itself, is is pretty fantastic. And now okay. you're saying this. You know, um, more. bones can so like regrowing bone is is really interesting because they they will grow on their own uh, and they will stitch back together. But when you have uh, shattered bone, like the uh, the interface between different pieces is is very disruptive and uh, can be hard to get it to grow correctly. And so, by removing those fragments, uh, you actually help the healing process. And then the implant that goes in. Um, like cells will follow signaling molecules. And so if you have the right signaling molecules in the implant um, and they're arranged correctly, which is possible to do if you are 3D printing uh, and, you know, with each piece you work with the physicians to design the implant. Um, wow. And then it's, you know, shipped to them. So it's very, uh, you know, JIT manufacturing, I guess you could say. Um, and, you know, it goes into the patient, uh, and it's really satisfying to know that, hey, you've worked on something that's going into someone, uh, and it's actually directly going to help them. Wow. As, uh, as a person with a couple of broken bones, I I can appreciate that <laughs> probably more than some other people. But yeah, I definitely uh, I definitely can appreciate that. I wish wish this was available when I was a kid and, and I had those bones broken. <laughs> Yeah, All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so, um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to use the, your your um, outline that that you presented, so we can get to uh, topics that are that uh, are, are are interested to both of us. Um, right. <laughs> did you did you do this all by yourself, or did you have some kind of a team helping you? Uh, so the this sort of stuff was done with a relatively small team. Uh, limited resources, so a couple of academic labs and a team of about 30 people. Uh, and it was really, really fun because the teams were very small, and so there was a lot more that each person had to understand and cover and uh, think about, and it made my job a little bit easier because there were smaller groups of people to influence uh, in the right ways to help them, you know, find the right answers to some of the problems we were facing. Okay. Uh, so what was that about the limited resources? How do you guys deal with that? It's, it's, it's always a fun question because everybody deals, uh, deals with limited resources in their own very certain, I'm sorry, in their own very specific way. Of so I wonder, I wonder what you guys did. So, um, with like when we were building this team, um, it you know when we understood okay we have this brain imaging modality and we have two options we can uh, s like we can patent it right now uh, and the university will help pay for the patent and we could probably find a buyer and then it would sit on a shelf somewhere until someone decided to do something with it uh, or we could build a product out of it and uh, you know form a company around it incorporate and everything and. Uh, get everyone together and try and create something that someone would be willing to fund. Um, 
after thinking about like the possible impacts of this uh, tech, we decided that it would be better to build a product. Um, because I, I think that there was like we saw direct clinical relevance, uh, we saw you know potential for positive impact, and we saw that the lead time was going to be long, and there's a very high likelihood that someone who buys up the patents would just sit on them because it's very, very expensive to get something through the FDA. And um, it's also like a 10-year process. And so you know, thinking about all of that and uh, sitting around with the team, we just said, okay, we're going to push for a company. Uh, and then we said, okay, well, we want to start something, but we have very limited resources. We have a couple of research grants um, and some personal money from some people involved uh, in this, and that's it. Okay. And uh, <laughs> so <laughs> that, that is that is very similar to other startups, uh, at least. And again, I'm not a startup person. I somehow happen to avoid practically uh, for the whole of my career. I've, I've avoided working for startups. If the one that I did work for was a spinoff from a pharmaceutical company, so right. I can't even call that a you know a fully <laughs> legit startup. Uh, but it's it's really interesting how uh, I mean I am familiar with startups in. Um, or around IT products or services, I'm completely unfamiliar with the startups around biotech because to me they they sound expensive and seem like you're you're confirming that suspicion. Yeah, so like the the process of a five ten k is like multiple millions of dollars, um, and there's like so much paperwork and uh, it's quite you know <laughs> it's just very 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 involved and. Um, there's a lot of clinical research that has to go into it before you can really say, okay, yes, uh, we are truly ready uh, to do this thing. And um, before the FDA will say, okay, yes, you are allowed to sell this. So um, the first challenge is, well, if you if you don't have a product you can actually sell, uh, then you don't have uh, any sort of revenue or cash flow. Um, and as a product manager, that makes your life very difficult. <laughs> Oh yeah, I can I can relate, <laughs> and it's not like and again I I I don't know how this works in biotech, but I rarely see anybody with a few million dollars laying around the house and just like yeah sure take that, uh, you yeah. know so, use it for something good buy yourself something funny. <laughs> <laughs> but we did have a couple of advantages. Um, we had a couple of physicians interested in the technology. Uh, so we had been uh, doing some experiments in the lab, and because uh, some of our friends were neurologists, we'd be like, hey, hey, come over here, like check this out. Um, and so we had some people who were like, okay, this is pretty neat. Um, and it turns out that physicians have um, a decent amount of uh, recurring revenue. And if you get enough of them together, it like helps along the process of uh, addressing like resources. Uh, the uh -huh. other thing we had was uh, we had academics, and academia is full of very interesting people who are really, really good at going extremely deep into a topic and exploring it to its fullest and then learning to optimize little pieces of it. And if you combine these things together, uh, you sort of start to see the, I guess, a cloudy picture of what you might consider you know, the beginnings of a team. Um, and then it just comes down to like defining your actual needs versus the resources you have at your disposal. 
And for us, like what really started to kind of come together out of this was a discussion we had about product need versus company need. From my perspective, way this story goes, you formed the company around uh, yourself to build a specific product or a specific set of products. So how do you see the, those needs being different? So um, I was actually not the original founder of the company. Um, so there was uh, my research supervisor was the person that I'd been working on this project under, um, was one of the original founders. And uh, he was the one that sort of started to push us all in the direction of, okay, we need a company. And I was very much in agreement with him while a lot of other people disagreed. And um, between us, we started like thinking about uh, you know, where we need to go with this. And it became very clear that the company itself would need a different set of um, departments and operational branches, I guess you could say, in the org chart than what we were going to build first. Because what we needed really was a team to get our product to a point where we could get the funding to build the other team. Um, okay. And, can you can you unpack that a little? Like, what teams uh, or what sequence of building teams did you have in mind? Because that 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 sounds so, rings true. So let me let me clarify yeah. that it rings true. It, it sounds like uh, ways all the startups work, right? So you have one guy who does uh, marketing calls calls potential investors uh, and sets up an appointment. <laughs> with uh i don't know uh with with investors and sets up an appointment for right. a ceo at the same time he goes and buys coffee so what is <laughs> what are the what are the and then you know when you once you expand you hire a a separate person to bring in coffee and only put this guy on the marketing or only put this guy on the sales calls depending on his performance uh so it, it it's normal but uh, I'm I'm still curious um uh, because biotech is is obviously different from i don't know uh people building a startup around uh, an app or a software. Yeah. So um, it differs from apps and software because when you're building a biotech product that's supposed to uh, perform a function and get past, like say clinical trials, um, the goal really is early on is you want good data quality. You want to be able to prove that it's uh, safe and efficacious and, uh, you know, it has the effect you want, or it does what you say it does. Uh, does it consistently and actually gives clinicians actionable data? And researchers already inherently understand, um, like academics, I mean, uh, you know, inherently understand good research data and uh, good data collection, and um, so that side of it was almost entirely filled by academics. But the thing is. If you're going to start something with limited resources and you plan to build a company, you need to be very careful to make sure that you're also meeting the needs of the VCs that will eventually invest in you. And that's very tricky because when VCs just see a science experiment that needs to be pushed through the FDA, um, they get reluctant. Uh, and it's and and so having this product vision early on was extremely important in saying, okay, like we need to make sure that we meet both sides of this. And, and this is what I mean by product need versus company need. So product need is what we need to do to get through the FDA to have an actual product to sell. Uh, company need is what do we need to do to satisfy the VCs so that we can actually form the company 
to take the rest of those steps forward because after that it becomes a resource and data collection game. And it's why I switched to an advisory role uh, later mm-hmm. on in the process, right? So, so for example, I guess like let's maybe dig into some specifics because I think I've been talking about this in a very like top level. Yes, um, I was going to ask <laughs> you to do that. Yeah. Uh, so, it, like, okay, uh, from a company standpoint, like you probably want, um, you know, a, a design department, an engineering department. Um, a software team, a hardware team, a human interfaces team, um, a sort of a medical director, and a couple of the other pieces around that, right? You need a business department and a few other things. But um, that's none of, or like most of that is not extremely relevant to the product needs of getting it through uh, regulatory. So what we tried to focus on was, okay, we're going to build a product vision. So we need hardware, software design, um, and human interfaces, but we don't need the business arm. We don't need marketing and we don't need um, sort of the other side of things until we're at a point where we're ready to pitch. And then we can sort of build those out Uh, at the same time we sat down and looked around and said, okay, we're all people here who are relatively capable of learning and doing things uh, and delegating things and deciding the right balance of which to do uh, in what departments is how we kept resources uh, very, very, I would say, like very focused on just the product need and tried to minimize the resources spent on company need until we were ready to pitch. So until we had a working prototype, we weren't going to do a lot of the other stuff. Uh, and right. that I think really the word you're looking for is lean. Uh, lean, <laughs> lean startup. Right. You, yeah. you're, only, you're focused on your goal and you keep pushing for it uh, with whatever, all the resources are basically focusing on getting that one goal. And once you reached it or once you start approaching it, that's when you started looking at other things. So that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. And, and um, the other thing we realized is there's so much that you could teach yourselves and do. Uh, and then like for certain types of manpower, um, bringing on a software team um, was easier done if you tapped academia, where you had people who specialized in the particular kind of software we needed, uh, you know, who wrote papers on brain imaging software and like worked with that and would love an opportunity to work on that as a project and be brought on board as partners uh, later in the process. Uh, And then also, uh, other researchers and other labs that were interested in sort of joining this project and and working together, uh, and, and so I think I would say like if if you're building a team, like my best advice is actually tap academia for product teams specifically, um, because they tend to have this understanding of research and data gathering, and they tend to come into it with very few assumptions. Um, they know their academics, and so they're less willing to sort of just jump on preconceived notions and move forward. And they're more willing to ask questions and explore and sometimes ask the right questions. And they're also more receptive to um, a product manager responding with, I'm not sure, but we can figure this out with the right type of uh, testing or studying or data gathering because they, they inherently understand the importance of that. 
the last part want to make won't make me uh, want me to go into biotech even more, especially when people are accepting of uh, we'll figure it out later responses <laughs> because <laughs> that's not what I've seen. So uh, from the from the and, and let me let me ask you a couple of questions here yeah. because the situation that you're describing is somewhat different, although. Don't get me wrong. There's a there's a lot of um, enthusiasm. There's a lot of uh, ways you can uh, build a team around an idea, and even sometimes make them work for peanuts or with little incentive, just because the topic is interesting. And uh, frankly, some of our guys in the company I work for right now, some of our guys do that as 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 a part of their. Um, in the spare time, they they experiment, they build things uh, that they later become a really cool, interesting uh, offerings. Uh, I'm, I'm trying not to call them products because they're not necessarily products, but they're pieces of functionality or software that that then company uses, or sometimes not, but it's fun to have them. Sometimes it sits on the shelf for five years. Right. Uh, but what is the incentive for those people to join you? I mean, you don't have any cash flow. You don't have even you, you don't even have a initial uh, financing from VCs. You're building towards that. Uh, so, what is their incentive? Uh, is that uh, how do you, how do you, how do you make them work for you? That's I guess that's my question. So uh, that's a really good question because uh, we actually really struggled with that problem at first, um, and then we realized two things, uh, and. One was academics love papers and publications, uh, and they have they already have an incentive to publish. And if you give them a slice of something to work on that you can then allow them to publish uh, at a future date, some of them will absolutely be okay with that. Uh, and the other part of that is um, academics do like to be able to patent technologies and to um, – build new things or like work at the very edge of their field. And if you incentivize them with uh, certain contracts as well as some pay and say, okay, so we're going to build this thing. And if it turns out to be novel enough and we can get it patented uh, or when this company is up and running and we have some funding, we will turn around and buy those patents from you and the university you work under. And that's a really good incentive for them because it puts them in the good graces of the university they're working with, as well as uh, gives them a sort of another type of publication. Uh, academics uh, don't mind at all uh, writing or like creating new tech and patenting it and selling it to companies because that also gives them future revenue. And so if they believed in our vision and they were interested in the kinds of things we were doing and thought they could do something novel in that. And we showed them some of our demos. We brought them into the lab and, and sort of explained what we were working on. Um, and they saw it and believed in it. We extended them that offer. And so it was a, I know we don't have much right now. And we were very upfront with that because uh, it's, it's not good if you try to trick people in those situations. And it's much better to be very upfront in that and then offer them a, but in the future, if we do, and if you believe in this and you think this will actually be a significant, uh, you know, a significant change to the way that uh, neurology is practiced or the way that we do brain medicine, then maybe this is worth working on. And maybe it's just that you can give us some of your spare time. 
but we will promise to return the favor in the future and uh, come back with money and uh, patents and things that we can allow you to publish. Mm-hmm. So they, they're okay with um, non-zero probability that it would not, it's not, it's not going to work out. Right. I mean, they, they still get something out of it, like their research papers and uh, potentially the pa- patents that they, uh, that they get. Exactly. And the way that was structured is if the company doesn't work out, then uh, those papers are allowed to be released or published, um, you know, basically saying, yes, the company didn't work out financially or whatever else, but you now own this piece of IP and uh, maybe some of the research that went into that. Uh, and maybe someone else will be interested in the future, but you still have a tangible publication out of it. And that's good for you. Uh, and if the company does work out, then we turn around and we uh, have those released as white papers. Or uh, in the case of patents, we purchase the patents from you. And that can be potentially very lucrative. So uh, right. it was a win win scenario whether our startup did well or not. And I think that's the only way to do it. Interesting. That that still leaves out the question of. Uh, so you brought them in, and uh, I understand that now. Now, thank you for explaining it because it's somewhat different in my world. Uh, but I understand the incentive for them to come over. What yeah. is the incentive that then? What is the incentive for them to stay? So, the thing we're working on, and I guess um, so. Are you sort of familiar with like the MRI or, um, you know, those types of brain imaging? So, as much as anybody who was in that uh, deaf deaf machine, or <laughs> not deaf but right, deaf, the, the very loud tube that <laughs> yep. uh, makes uncomfortable noises. Um, I actually managed to fall asleep once. So yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, it's a. Uh, it can be kind of soothing because you have like nothing to do and your brain just kind of gets bored after a while and uh, just shuts off. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> so um, there's a type of MRI imaging called functional MRI. And what it does is it looks at the sugar uptake in your brain over a certain time slice, right? And it's about, um, it's generally an average of 10 to 20 minutes, but essentially, uh, the image you get at the end, like the the deliverable that the machine prints out for you, I guess you could say, um, is a, a picture of your brain with uh, varying degrees of bright lights over the regions that were most engaged during the last 20 minutes. So uh, that's an existing technology. It's available for, uh, you know, at most major hospitals and it can be used in different kinds of studies, right? So it's like which parts of the brain were active based on their sugar uptake uh, and, you know, which parts light up most. Great. Um, The problem is the time slice is really large. And so for finer tuned um, brain stuff, that's not really workable. Um, The technology that we were working on um, allowed you to get that time down to milliseconds. And so what you could do is you could do any sort of study and watch the brain light up uh, almost immediately. And not only that, but instead of presenting you with a physical image, we were presenting you with a network map of the brain. Uh, And so our imaging modality wasn't um, visual or spatial, but it was uh, informational. So which areas the brain light up? Where is the data going? What are the nodes? 
Um, and you know, what's the crosstalk like and, and where does all the information go? And that has these just amazing potential in so many different areas. Um, for one, we could measure and quantify consciousness, which is just a crazy idea if you uh, think about it. And I, I read a lot of science fiction, so that's not 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 that crazy. But <laughs> please, uh, this does sound like science fiction. So please continue. I love this episode of uh, of the sci-fi show. <laughs> oh my gosh! So, um, so, so when you bring someone in and uh, show them this and say, "Do you want to work on this thing that has the potential to maybe like have a major impact in the way we treat?" brain injuries and uh, comas and locked-in syndrome and, and all these other um, terrible brain diseases where like we just – or conditions, I guess we could say, uh, where we don't really know what's going on and we have very limited tools in figuring it out, right? It's like, do, do you want to build the next best hammer for figuring out how brains are working and, and what's going on there? Um, most people are pretty interested in giving it a shot because they immediately saw the potential. I mean, there's uh, – you know, many clinical scenarios and uh, other scenarios based around this and many research opportunities if you start using the tech. And that's the other side of the incentive coin. So how we made them stay was um, you can run studies with prototypes and um, early versions of this tech and release them once the tech is in the market. Okay. And, wow. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other side of that is, of course, uh, it gave us a user base right? Uh, where you can actually like test things. And, um, and so there's, there's two sides of that, right? A give and take uh, a positive mutual benefit for everybody involved. Wow. Uh, <laughs> that is, that, uh, as I said, this does sound like uh, science fiction. So I'm, I'm having a hard time um, disconnecting from the notion that I just watched another episode of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I, I mentioned altered carbon. This probably this probably yeah. a good time to mention. <laughs> I don't know uh, Stargate. No, no, it's okay, <laughs> so Vlad. Vlad, deep breaths because ten years <laughs> out at least. <laughs> okay, so let's get back to to where we started, and uh, the question here is then: so, what would make a product in the product management sense of the word? Uh, what would make a product? Um, in this case, would that be software that maps out the brain, brain activity, or or software that builds up specific, I don't know, assistance for brain surgeon? Or and, and forgive so, me if I'm yeah, no, no, using the wrong words. That's okay. Um, that's a really good question. And um, the way we sort of thought of it is, uh, we want to build a tool, uh, and that that tool should be the product and it should be this sort of uh, all-in-one package, right? So you want the the software that actually does all the analysis, right? The the hardware that includes like the computer hardware that uh, does all the number crunching, um, as well as the actual hardware that, uh, you know, that the brain scanner itself is. Um, and then the uh, design and packaging and everything. And we wanted just one deliverable, like a, sort of a, a tool that any scientist or researcher could pick up. And uh, again, like a, a good example of this would be something like an MRI machine. Um, there are different models, of course, but the general like idea of an MRI machine is you put someone in a tube and you can look at their brain, right? And different people have found different ways to use that uh, in various fields, right? You have researchers that use it um, for psychiatry research, for um, psychology research, 
Uh, you have neurosurgeons who will take MRIs before and after a surgery and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so our idea was build the tool, build a very, very good tool, and sort of give that to various fields that would take advantage of it. Wow, uh, I mean, I, I'm sorry. Maybe that's a that's a flat joke, but I just have to ask: <laughs> if, if, the way you imagine packaging your product uh, for general use, do you would you include a a brain to practice on, or is that on the client side? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I would want to make it so that the the thing was safe enough that anyone could put on the device and. Um, use their own brain. Like, so I guess you could say like brains are included. They're yours. Uh, <laughs> now stick your own brain and see how that works. I mean, yeah, yeah it might, sure. might work. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's only like a really weird electrical device. Like what's the worst that could happen, right? <laughs> you short circuit your brain and you, I don't know. I, I, I don't know who, which one of the superheroes uh, got that. I, I don't remember all of them. I, I only remember oh, a few. <laughs> you get flash or or i don't know yeah, I mean, someone else uh, who knows but it's a it's such an interesting like you know it like the the idea was that when we started out and we saw what we had we said okay we need to turn this into something and it should be something usable for a wide variety of people and so we started sort of narrowing down like okay what's our actual product vision here right yep. um so we want something that was wearable uh, in pretty much any orientation, uh, because you know sometimes patients are laying down, sometimes they're sitting up and sitting on a table, uh, and sometimes you're just you know in the living room with your friends and decide that zapping your brain might be something fun to try, uh, and so something portable, uh, something very very simple to use. Uh, very quickly, we learned that you know from the physicians we talked to, um, as we tried putting various. Uh, sketches of the device in front of them, uh, we realized that the less complicated it looked, the f- like happier they were with it. And so, really, like being being careful to be empathetic towards the primary user, which is a, a physician or a researcher, um, and saying, "Okay, well, what do we do to lower your cognitive load so that when you're using this device, you can be thinking about other things and still get." consistent results that are you know trustworthy and and usable and that was a really important requirement uh, the third requirement was that it had to be portable and self-contained now part of the simplicity thing is you, you don't want a cart uh, with a bunch of stuff on it uh, that you have to wheel around from room to room because that's just more difficult to use um, inherently portable uh, and smaller is better because you can use it in more environments uh, and so those were kind of the the big requirements for a product so wow i mean it, it does sound like product requirements it, it absolutely does <laughs> to me like if, you know you design uh, an iphone has to be portable you know should not bend when you sit on it right uh, <laughs> if you know what i mean and uh, yeah it's it's uh, very product uh, I, I again i apologize but i just have to ask given that it's portable and given that i brought up altered carbon a couple of times already so how far are we from carrying a device that records your brain and then can uh play it back or at least give me an idea what the hell was I thinking five minutes ago? 
Um, very far away, just because of the last part that you said. So the, what was I thinking five minutes ago is incredibly difficult. Like the, the signal complexity of like what comes out of your brain is just insane on a level that is hard to get into without like really spitting off another podcast because it's a, it's a PhD level topic or actually well beyond that. Um, and I'm not even qualified to kind of go there and, and really tease all that out because it's just so far beyond like what. I could possibly even begin to talk about. <laughs> okay, no, I'm, I'm I'm not pretending I'm smart enough. I, no, I, I, no, as, no. A, as a consumer of that technology, you know, I put my keys somewhere and I can't find them. I'm I'm really curious <laughs> since we didn't get our flying cars, but by, by you know year 2000, <laughs> the least the least our scientists can do is like tell me where the keys are because right, <laughs> I, you know, play back my uh, last five minutes of thought. Yeah, that would be an excellent poster. Just the the least our scientists could do is tell me where my keys are. That's a really funny one. I like that. <laughs> By all means, uh, uh, I can help you with uh, product packaging <laughs> if you want. <laughs> I have plenty of crazy ideas. Um, okay, so we've touched upon, uh, and, and thank you. This is amazing. This is uh, completely uh, different from um, what I'm doing, or what I'm at least even even what I'm involved in. My my specialty is more B two B, B two B two C software. Right. So I get to see a lot of enterprise things, but I don't get to see things that are, that are connected to academia and things that are connected to the research. Um, so my my understanding is, um, as as you work on the value prop of this product, and I, I can see it even you know with my limited scope of knowledge. Um, what what are the challenges? And I would imagine again, as I said, this is a very different world that you are in uh, compared to what I deal with. Uh, what are the regular challenges? Like, what does your day day to day life look like uh, in in building this amazing product? Um, so, quite. A, I guess let's see. Um, so, from a design perspective, uh, one of the main challenges was uh, how do we make this comfortable for the user and the um, person who's wearing it because that's actually not the user. Um, and so when you have a product that interacts with two different people directly in such a such a way that like um, when we set out to actually design it, we um, had to really think about, okay, like the person wearing this, like how will they feel? Uh, will it look friendly to them? Um, and, and I'll get back to why we did that. I think uh, later Later in the outline, you'll see like exactly why that mattered very early on because it sounds like almost a you know at the end of product development consideration. But um, and and so in the design phase, it was like okay, this is relatively heavy electronics. Uh, there's some you know computer hardware in there. Uh, you've got to cool that down. Uh, the fan shouldn't be loud or scary because being in a hospital is frustrating and uh, can be scary for the patient. And so it's like, will a child be able to comfortably wear this? Uh, and then it's like, okay, well, we need to distribute weight to the shoulders and the back because you don't want to put all that weight on someone's head because after about 10 pounds, like your neck gets very tired. Um, and you have to wear this thing for about 10 minutes for the scan. Um, and so there was that part of it. Uh, on the other side, it was the physician side. It's like, okay, what do the printouts look like? Like, what are the. Um, you know, what are the considerations there? Like, how do you lower cognitive load? Uh, we settled on a put on patient, press one button, wait for scan to complete, because I, that was like the simplest possible, um, you know, design that we could come up with that was like still had some relatively usable things. 
um, pressing the button again would immediately cancel the scan if there was ever a problem. Like physicians should be able to know that you know there's an easy way to cancel it, whatever. Uh, and so that was like a really important part of it. Uh, from the actual technology and R and D stuff, um, it becomes crazy because uh, on one hand, like we're combining multiple existing brain imaging modalities and doing a lot of like the special stuff in software. And so you need a ton of computing uh, resources, uh, which is difficult and tricky when you're doing something local and portable and self-contained. Um, and then you also need uh, some really good software. And uh, the actual electronics and the hardware needs uh, its own set of controllers and other things. And because you're delivering, um, you know, magnetic fields in re like very close to the MRI level of magnetic fields, uh, there's a lot of safety considerations. Uh, and, and so over there, the challenges became, you know, how do we make this really, really, really safe? And how do we make sure that it's absolutely not going to injure someone? Uh, and then on the materials perspective, uh, we actually had to um, alloy some relatively uh, unusual materials to handle the thermal considerations of like uh, essentially like okay um, maybe this doesn't make sense so uh, let me step back and redo this part so okay from the materials side uh, we had to think about um, you're running a really really powerful electric current through um, a metal coil and that coil is going to heat up and if you're running relatively powerful currents at the level of an MRI machine, then you either need to cool it with liquid helium, which is very, very cold and very not portable, um, or you need to find a way to cool it down or find a material that can handle that kind of heat. And then it's also in very close proximity to the user, so you need to make sure that that's not going to hurt them. And so that make, whole problem was makes uh, makes makes it very <laughs> challenging, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and um, we our goal was to get this ready to pitch in about nine months, so not a lot of time. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it sounds like uh, sounds like well if not rocket science then pretty close to that um uh, anything our mere mortals can relate to <laughs> and I, I mean this in a very extremely respectful oh, way no, no, no. It's, um, because well, okay. you guys you guys seem to work uh, literally work magic uh read where the device that's gonna read your brain and not fry it at the same time so so here's some here's some like really practical advice for working magic right um when you're working on really, really crazy stuff, um, there's there's a saying that my supervisor had, and it's always uh, that there's always someone crazier than you are. And uh, he's been right multiple times because it's like we we would present him with a um, with the requirements, like okay, we like I would be talking to him and say, okay, our team needs to do this or find this, um, and almost always after he looked at me and said that. Uh, and told me to go do some really deep digging. Um, it turned out that someone somewhere had a similar need and that you could almost always find a material. So we are actually able to find a material and adapt it within about two weeks. Um, and, and it turned out that uh, 
when people were building railguns, uh, they realized that you have really powerful magnets and that you can pulse really, really high current through them uh, and fire projectiles at you know multiple times the speed of sound. But um, those metal coils would melt if they were made of ordinary uh, alloys. And so we looked at some of the work that other people had done uh, related to that and sort of came up with our own um, alloying requirements and uh, found someone who would quickly fabricate uh, something relatively close to what we needed uh, and then ran some tests on it. And it turned out that if you pulsed it at a certain, um, like at a low enough frequency, you wouldn't overheat the coil. Uh, so you wouldn't damage anything. And, and this is sort of, um, I guess, a, a really good lesson in take an approach that is really practical um, and not an approach that is exactly what you envisioned. So MRI machines are constantly running current through massive magnets and thus like need huge amounts of cooling. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, does your product really need that? Or can you do the same thing with pulsed magnetic fields? And how short can you make the pulses without degrading your data, right? So it's like, a, uh, what are the trade-offs there? And so running small studies around that and understanding, oh, like we can have relatively short pulses and our data quality doesn't really degrade very much. And we suddenly can just throw out the entire liquid helium cooling loop that would basically invalidate our product idea. Okay. So... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can relate on the experimentation level, but this is really amazing. This is really an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> no, no, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's my pleasure. It's really fun to kind of talk about some of this stuff because uh, the conditions were just insane. And it's really fun to like see how like the teams came up with various ways to sort of work around that. The other thing is that when you're solving a problem, um, so I mean, okay, you've done you've done some project management as well, right? Uh, so um, if you think about like a lot of the project management stuff is built around um, sort of these uh, choke points or like you know, um, I guess efficiency limitations in like how you waterfall a project or something like that, right? Okay. Yes. So um, one of the things we found is that it's almost always better to build those around major problems you're trying to solve. And then the most efficient use of resources is to have each team solve that problem in their realm independently, as if they're the only team working on it. And then you aggregate those results and you often get a result that's an order of magnitude better at solving that problem. So rather than like minimizing the problem by 20 or 30%, the problem disappears overnight. And so when we started looking at thermal considerations um, and, you know, pulsing uh, electronic currents through, through all the circuitry, uh, we looked at the software team and said, you know, can you design a regime that or can you code a regime where it's like there's an algorithm that looks at uh, how heated our circuits are and decides like how to pulse things? And we looked at the um, electrical engineering team and said, "Hey," uh, which was like you know, then each of these teams is like two or three people. So it's like, "Hey, like can you two come up with an idea for keeping these components cool in a way that doesn't stress the circuits, but also still like doesn't degrade any of the data quality?" And then we looked at the design team and said, okay, like, 
you're doing the physical design for this packaging uh, of this uh, device. Can you build it in such a way that we have more airflow through the body where all the components are held and, and so on and so forth? And by not having each team solve the problems created by another team, or like like you you never want software to be solving a hardware problem. You want software to be solving a problem, and you want hardware to be solving a problem, and you want each of them doing it in a way that does it best. When you combine all those solutions, uh, you get something that runs relatively cool. Uh, cool enough that like, despite us having a coil that we were running like three Tesla magnetic fields through, uh, which like three Teslas on par with an MRI scanner. It's like if you if you took anything metal uh, in the same room as an MRI scanner, it would just suck it right in, um, which is insane if you think about like the strength of the magnetic field. But despite us running similar magnetic fields through that coil, um, the way we did it, you could touch the coil right afterwards with your bare hands, and it wouldn't burn you. And, and so it's like, if you want to eliminate a problem, let each team solve it in their domain. Okay, it makes sense. I mean, this yeah, is mostly the autonomy that uh, we kind of all advocate in, in the product management mindset. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that uh, it still works, even if you're not talking <laughs> just about the software products, but as a... a if you're still, if you're talking about software and hardware together, and this is specifically hardware alone, it still works and still delivers amazing results. Yeah, and so, it's, I mean, it's like I would say it. We would credit that for probably most of our cost savings because you can quickly see how like certain problems would spiral out of control if you had everyone trying to solve it in an inefficient way because all just like all the efficiencies stack up to solve the problem all the inefficiencies would stack up to drive up cost and like consume resources and uh take a lot more time and so i i think that it's a really really good approach and it's it's funny to have read that in a book tried it and had it work <laughs> um this is a very humbling moment for me because i i you know at this point i was like trying to figure out how to lead this team that i'd thrown together um, <laughs> And you know, unrealistic timeline. It's like part of the the funny part is um, when you don't know that that's an unrealistic timeline, and you think that that's reasonable. Like it kind of changes your approach, right? You, you go into it with the assumption that it can be done, and, and I think that my ignorance helped me more than like if I'd known what I was being asked to do. I think that I would have um, collapsed in despair. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's a it's a known fact that it's that's the way it works. I remember when I was a kid. Um, I, I as I said, I, I love science fiction, and since we are talking about science fiction here, I think it's relevant <laughs> to bring this up. There was a story I can't remember because I read it in the uh, in the translated forum. There was a story about uh, a couple of scientists and a military general. Uh, inventing or or discovering somehow uh, anti-gravity but having a hard time convincing anybody that it isn't anti-gravity it is uh actually real everybody thinks it's a joke nobody takes them seriously so what they did was they came up with a very specific uh toy where uh you put a toy on a on a string 
and you pull a string and it's kind of like, oh, look, it's magic. You know, this helicopter is flying and you, you as whenever somebody wants to buy a toy, you show them the trick. You show them that you're actually presenting this with a black uh, thread against the black background, so nobody can actually see that this is a thread. You say th- they think it's, uh, you know, magic. You you wave your hand and the helicopter flies. <laughs> but the real trick behind the trick was that the thickness of the thread was specifically calibrated so that if you don't turn on that anti gravity device. The thread would break. It would it would tear apart, and the air, <laughs> the the helicopter would not fly. And uh, they sold. I think a story goes that they sold about uh, twenty or thirty prototypes, and they specifically targeted uh, people with scientific background and people who are curious enough, so that when they tried to show this to their kids, and they would think. I mean, come on, it's in line, right? It's on. It, it hangs on the line, so I don't have to turn on the 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 power on the toy to make it fly. It would break, and they would start asking questions. Wait a second, if that's the trick, if I had just have to pull on the line on the on the thread, and it will fly, why does it break when I don't turn on the toy but doesn't break when i do turn on the toy and and that curiosity moment should kind of sparkle the their discussion or or their uh you know investigation into what what is going on with this toy this is not right and uh it's <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of how things work in in life you uh you you, you get too curious and uh and, and, and get things get uh, things get compl- things get complicated. Uh, an, all right. Um, yeah. Amazing. Is there anything else? Uh, <laughs> is there another episode of this science fiction uh, that uh, that we need to talk? And I'm 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 looking at the time and your timeline. Uh, so if there's anything uh, you want to anything else you want to share, uh, by all means. Um, I would say uh, let's talk a little bit about like the pitching side of it, right? Because. Um, we did something really, really unusual in that um, we walked into a room uh, of investors that we'd sort of gathered for a little conference, um, and we'd done our homework. So we'd chosen some people that we knew were interested in brain things, right? So that historically had either expressed interest in interviews or in some of the companies that they had previously funded and so on and so forth, right? Um, but what what's really unusual is that we managed to fund the company fully for the next decade uh on our first try and that that doesn't happen like that doesn't happen i've been told multiple times that that's a statistical anomaly and um like by other vcs and and by some very 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 amazingly talented people in the field and they're just like how how did you do it and uh i want to maybe talk about why and how um, because maybe people will find that valuable. I don't know. Um, so I think that one of the the biggest things is that uh, it stems from like my love of Steve Jobs as like a younger kid. Um, I, I am an Apple fan. I'm sorry if if anyone isn't. 
Um, but like that's okay. I I told you it's, it's, <laughs> we, we we've already agreed to disagree. I'm I'm actually not a biggest fan of Apple. I am. That's interesting. I don't have a single Apple device in my house. So <laughs> I I am surrounded by them right now. <laughs> actually, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> but you know that's yeah that's right. It's part of part of this is disagreeing. Um, yep, absolutely. And I think one of the things that. I found really interesting about the way that Steve Jobs presented products is that he would demo things and try and delight the people in the audience. And, and this is what I mean by like when I say I have the outline like don't show and tell, like demo and delight, right? And that's really the key here is that all the stuff that we did on the early end, uh, the things I was talking about, making the design friendly and usable. And sort of compressing what was like a tangle of wires on a workbench and a bunch of circuit boards into like a relatively compact um, product and a friendly looking design. Now, it was all so that we could do live demos with the VCs. And that's a crazy thing to do because usually you don't want to do live demos and you don't want to do it in a really risky environment. Like it's better to show results or it's better to like, talk about a thing, show some videos. And, and and that's kind of what they were expecting when we walked into the room. Um, what they weren't expecting is um, us like Skyping in some of our engineers, like in the middle of our um, product talk. And we had about an hour to pitch them and it was uh, myself and the founder. And uh, some of our team was remote and we like, you know, opened these cases and, and pulled out these helmets. And I said, does anyone want to give it a try? And I got a lot of stares and a lot of people looking around at each other. Um, and so I said, it's okay, I'll go first. And uh, sat down and, you know, my uh, my colleague, CEO and uh, boss put it on me and we started like playing around with it. I was able to show them that it was like really comfortable and that I wasn't in pain and I could like talk through like to them throughout uh that like 10 minute scan. And so I was like presenting slides and everything. Uh, and at the end of it, we like switched over and our engineers like pulled up the data and we Skyped them in and we said, Hey, like, this is what my brain looks like when I'm pitching something. And do any of you want to find out um, what your brains look like right now? And we can maybe make some predictions about what you, what you were doing. Um, and so we had a couple volunteers and I'll never forget, like when I was able to turn to one of them, and I said, um, from the data, it looks like you meditated this morning. And they just kind of gave me this look like, wait, what? <laughs> and what they didn't know is that um, while we'd been working with all these researchers in the background with like demo versions of the device, uh, they'd started exploring like, what does your brain actually look like um, when you meditate after a while? And when you like have a lot of coffee or when you're exhausted and like what pathways are more and more or less prominent. We'd started like we started as a team to like put together that you can actually like glean some of this information. Uh, and so the like we freaked people out because we were able to tell them things about their day or like the state of their brain that they didn't think we could we could glean. Um, so I'm sorry to interrupt. So is that does that is, is that sounds like you guys had uh, sort of a library of patterns? Yes, and, we did. And you, once you, oh, okay, all right. Yes, so so that's, there's a lot of you patterns. You recognize those patterns? Okay, makes sense. I'm sorry. Please go on. No, and, and so um, 
And yeah, so it's really important to have libraries uh, because like when you do research, you want to build like standard sets of data. So we took a bunch of healthy brains and had people like doing these scans and we were, you know, using that feedback to tweak the product and make it better in some ways. But uh, interestingly, or more interestingly was like those standards helped us then pitch because it's like, here's a product, here's its potential, like we're using it. You can actually see the technology at work, uh, but we need money to get it through the FDA process to use it medically because it has all these other uses and potentials uh, for good. And um, and they understood, like they inherently understood, okay, this is a thing that's valuable and um, you know has a market and a use case, and it might take a long time uh, to get there because that process is long and expensive, but that it might be worth taking a chance on because like VCs are a type of customer and their product is a semi-ready idea with a strong likelihood of good ROI. And that's what they want. They want potential and ROI. And so that's how, um, yeah, that, that's my advice for pitching from someone who's pitched a couple times and uh, has helped fund things. I totally agree with you. And um, in in uh, my defense, I don't like Apple products. <laughs> I do like Apple's presentations. I, as a matter of fact, I did a few presentations on, uh, we, we launched a couple of products in my last company. Uh, it's an yeah. enterprise software. So we launched uh, the product that I was managing uh, before I started going on assignments. Uh, we launched it uh, first time in 2018 and we launched V2 in 2019. So I was there in three or four conferences. I can't remember exactly uh, how many there were. Um, doing the presentation, doing live demos and talking to people uh, about a product, about value proposition, uh, not investors, but people who actually have uh, the power to either influence or make the decision to buy. Of course. And I completely agree with Demo and Delight, uh, especially when I just started actively doing it. Um, one thing I've, I've, I've immediately uh, learned is don't, don't talk show. Uh, don't show don't don't talk and tell show and tell and if you can make it look like magic it's even better and, and this is what you guys did and uh, i love it um about the way you demo and delight uh, unfortunately not every product looks like science fiction but you can throw in a little magic here and there right right and that's <laughs> you know that's 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 the approach i'm trying to take and that's the approach i'm uh, i'm trying to coach in uh whenever whenever i talk about product management uh some of the things you don't have to talk talk a lot about your product you have to show hey this is uh, this is what this is what magic happens and this is what it look like and it's absolutely uh it, it sweeps people off their feet so that's yeah. that 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 is great. I, I'm I'm glad we're on the same page there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and it's like, you know, it's a human thing. Like humans like stories and they like surprise and they like to engage with more than one sense. And, and that's really what it comes down to, right? Like it's totally different to like look at a slide and see a video of a thing uh, and to like put it on your head and like have someone tell you something about yourself that you didn't expect them to know because you just met. Funny you mentioned that. Um, 
that, that you, you need to story. So, so someone asked me this question earlier today, and I want to turn this around and ask you yeah. as as a person in the product management role, but your role seemed to be completely different, different from, I'm sorry, maybe not completely different, but significantly different from product management as we see it on regular software products. What do you say are top three qualities of a good product manager? That's an interesting question. So uh, top three qualities, I would say uh, one is being really, really adaptive um, and willing to understand that uh, what you're doing is you're not standing on a surface, but on like shifting and waving sand and that you need to learn to pivot immediately uh, when things don't seem to be going the way they are or to understand that sometimes when the sand is shifting, uh, the direction you're going is the correct one. And despite the forces that might try to sway you, uh, you have to be willing to move forward in the direction that you think is correct and that there is a real art to balancing those two sides. Uh, I would say your second trait should be trusting your teams. Um, a lot of the problems that we were able to solve uh, so quickly and so cheaply is because I trusted the teams that I was working with, where it was like, I know that you're an engineer and you do electrical stuff. And if you tell me this is good uh, and I ask a couple of questions and understand the problem, I should trust you and we should move forward with that. And that it's better to do that than to introduce tension um, because if it doesn't work or if the person working on that solution thinks it doesn't work, as long as you leave room for them to turn around and tell you, hey, I don't think this is working. We should change things up. Um, if that trust is still there, uh, you will be on board with that as well. It's like that they can understand and figure out when things don't go their way. And I would say number three, um, you have to really have empathy uh, for everyone around you, whether it's the the teams you're leading, uh, the teams that you're working with, the VCs you're pitching to. Now, I really, really see empathy as a professional tool. Uh, I think humans are emotional creatures and we respond to that uh, emotion. And it's like one of the things that we did when we were choosing um, people to pitch to is that we specifically did our research on what they uh, invested in, but also we tried to watch as much footage of them interacting with other people to try and gauge who they were emotionally uh, and picked ones that we specifically would really vibe with and that would vibe with each other. And so when we put everyone in a room together, uh, we minimized the awkwardness and just really like it, it felt like a bunch of people who were celebrating and enjoying um, this whole process and they were all interested in the same things or they at least had some things in common. Uh, and, and that really changes the game. Because what you don't want is to be there with an, a bored or upset or um, just annoyed person uh, who's like, you know, this is like the sixth pitch and of the day. And this is like the slide set that they're seeing uh, that they've seen five times over. And what they're seeing is holes in the business plan and um, holes in like the product or the process or this is exactly what they've seen before. Um, and I think that it's really important to understand the emotional um, spectrum of every person that you work with, uh, because 
it really helps people connect and work with each other and that's like whether that's internally or externally and so yeah the, that would wow. be wow thank you that's uh <laughs> first of all that's amazing uh that, that that's a great pitch <laughs> for uh for empathy i uh this is new we I, I think i'm gonna start collecting these and and probably publish it as a separate episode all the qualities that people uh think that product manager has to have um so far we've had three or four uh answers to that uh adaptive or flexible or or responsive seem to be the the trend so that's kind of on top of everybody's list everything else um everybody has has their own everybody has uh something else that they feel yeah um so um we're uh, almost at a time actually we were out of time but uh we need to wrap up somehow and uh, believe me i don't want to uh, switch off this uh, this uh, sci-fi show i i want more so hopefully we'll have you uh we'll have you one more time on this episode on on this podcast uh maybe even uh with my co-host uh, she'll uh, she'll be able to pull more stuff out of you yeah i would love <laughs> to do that. <laughs> uh, so let me let me uh, turn the tables a little bit, uh, as promised, and uh, ask you if you have any questions for me. Um, in in hopefully I can answer them today without going into uh, you know twenty minutes of uh, of of deliberation. I'm sure. I'm actually uh, curious. So uh, you talked a little bit about the EMR stuff that you worked on, and I wanted to know, like, when you were in that role. Um, what were some of the like early challenges, especially with, uh, I guess I would say like, um, upper management and how you were able to like handle some of the demands of, um, the business side of things and the insurance side of things, because I'm, I mean, I'm sure that when you were pitching EMR software, you were pitching it to hospitals and insurance companies and sort of all together in, in that realm. Let me start from the if, uh, from the end and work backwards. Um, <laughs> the times that I was working with EMR software, um, I was not working on the with the independent team. It's it was a part of the oh. uh, initiative within um, within the company, so it was internal software. Um, right. It was several different companies, so we didn't pitch it to anyone. Uh, we had internal customers who had a specific need, and we developed software based on the needs that we've identified. In almost all the cases, except for one, it was refactoring or rebuilding the legacy software in one way or another. Right. In a, two, two cases, sorry. It was uh, uh, one time it was the acquisition and we just re- replaced the existing software that was extremely clunky, extremely horrible with something that looked and feel, felt better. Right. And in other case, the... Uh, way way up the decision was made to replace a whole stack of applications with a single system single data store uh single analytics suite and that thing that i keep calling clinical viewer as a emr that allows you to see it, it kind of transcended the boundaries that existed before between the inpatient and outpatient data, uh, things that are coming in from uh, outside labs and feeds, and kind of presented everything in a single point of view, a uh, single point of reference. 
So, uh, and, and the reason for that was because there's too many data sources. It was right. un, unrealistic to keep incorporating them. Uh, the, the health system, the healthcare system that I was working for, they kept acquiring, merging, splitting, remerging with other hospitals and, uh, having, uh, customization work done on each of the systems to bring them all together it didn't make any sense so the decision was made pretty high up to kind of let's build this one data store that's going to feed off of everything that we ever going to have so now you're replacing the problem of customizing everything to work together with an already solved problem how do we feed the data from the system that we just got into into the existing data store so it becomes a problem of uh, data normalization rather than data acquisition that's fascinating so essentially you you turn the problem around completely and said okay no 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 we will just put the data centrally and anyone who needs it can access it and display it in a way that they need to and and, and standardize that sort of process of accessing Correct. The, the only correction is, is it was not it was not me who <laughs> made that decision, uh, but yes, that was that's what uh, I, I don't want to take credit uh, for for this genius move. Uh, I just want to make sure we're clear on that. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what happened, and uh, my my responsibility was building the actual front end, uh, the customer facing front end for those systems. That's fascinating. So um, when you were working on, I guess the the front end of that or the customer facing side of that. Um, how did you sort of factor in physicians' needs and uh, nurses' needs and uh, like some of that other stuff? Like what what led to like what did your data acquisition or I guess like um, customer intelligence look like? I don't, I don't know if that's the right term. That's that's the right term. Uh, it's just the the time when uh, and and the environment that I was in was not that data heavy as it was not you know 2019 or 2020 when we make data-driven decisions and we collect data first and do things later a lot of this was driven by uh what we call product management gut feeling right and uh based on and, and and this is this is kind of my ideology uh when in when you don't have the data you still need some kind of uh truth some kind of a source to base your decisions on you can't just come in and say okay we're doing this because i i said so just you know i'm i'm, I'm the captain of the ship make it so right uh, and, and and the reason why i'm saying that is because i've seen those decisions made by people who've been in the industry for 20 25 years and 90 percent of their decisions were wrong yeah uh, and, and, and it, it was a huge waste so you, you, it was still worked with subject matter experts. Uh, we still worked with whomever was willing to talk to us. Right. And uh, the the operational uh, framework was talk to as many people as possible, get those people's best gut feeling of what is right, and start experimenting. Start building things so you can test dry them as as soon as possible and this was one of those things when we've introduced a rapid application development framework so we're not even coding things we were kind of using website builder think okay, of it this yeah, way yeah. Like, and uh, we've yeah and we, we built a system of one system another system another system uh using that um rad 
solution so that we can bounce them off of real users and see what their feedback is. Luckily for us, the feedback was positive, uh, but not always. And in many cases, uh, feedback was neutral, as in, why are you wasting time on this? Right. I mean, right. It was good. It was good before, uh, but um, and and it's kind of like one of my one of my favorite things to to relate to. Everybody's talking about data driven decisions because uh, we we can collect a lot of data now, uh, and there's a way to do that. But with the enterprise software, with B two B clients, with cases like this, there's not that much data. There's not that there's not enough data to uh, make you feel very slow, strongly about the decision that you're making, and and that's what right. you need to be, I guess, be smart about it. Yeah, no, that's it's interesting that you bring that up because it's one thing that I've sort of seen as I've uh, jumped into other PM roles at other companies and and just sort of like thought about how to uh, handle some of the problems they're having is that people seem to have this obsession with data um, more than they do with asking the right questions or testing in the right manner. Um, and it comes down to, I think, a quantity and quality problem, where it's like all the data in the world doesn't help you if it's the wrong kind of data. And Yes, I agree with that. <laughs> Thank and, you. <laughs> <laughs> and I just like, you know, maybe I find it really wasteful that uh, people spend so many resources on acquiring data without even like thinking about the questions and the experimental design. Um, and I would encourage people to like, if you're a PM in, in those types of roles, like maybe consider uh, pulling in a couple of academics. Uh, maybe they're interns that work for you for a semester or two. But um, have them design experiments because they're in an environment that encourages good experimental design. And if they have a research background, like they'll have a better idea of the, the right questions to ask sometimes. Um, Interesting. I, I didn't yeah. think about the academia because uh, in, in the world that I live in, we're probably very disconnected from from the academia, at least the way I remember it or the way I think about it. That's it's quite common, right? Like uh, businesses generally disconnected from academia. I mean, they're seen as uh, polar opposites, but I think that there's uh, like with any thing that's very different, uh, there's usually some overlap and some difference in opinion and experience that can be valuable uh, if applied correctly. Cool. Uh, I, I, thank you. That that that's that is interesting. That's something for me to, as as a <laughs> as a product manager with uh, a lot of experience in different fields that are not connected to academia. It maybe it's time for me to start rethinking that and start uh, arguing that hey, um, you know, this is something where we can use people with academia background. Maybe there's there's value in that. Yeah. So thank you. That's that's useful. Thank you. Uh, this has been incredibly fun. I really enjoyed being able to sit here and like talk to you about this and uh, really just kind of go through this uh, blizzard of different topics and touch on a bunch of different things. Uh, and I hope we get to do this again. Oh yeah, definitely. I definitely hope I'll 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 see the sequel to this uh, amazing science fiction show. <laughs> I, I I am I am very thrilled. I I am trying to stay up to date with the current trends and uh, discoveries and things that are happening all across uh, different industries. But this is this is uh, way too cool for that. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for being my guest and thank you for uh, being so thorough with your story. I definitely hope we'll uh, we'll hear more from you, and I, I 
think it's worth bringing you back in, in a while and see how you guys progressed. And maybe there's some new stories that um, you can share with us. Absolutely. Uh, Vlad, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Fazan, and take care. You've been listening to The Real World Product Management, and I've been your host, Vlad Grubman. Until the next time...